April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Paul Worsling has been in the fishing business for 30 years. He's filmed more than 500 episodes of his popular television show, iFish, and doesn't show any sign of slowing down. In this episode of Anchored, I meet with Paul at his home near Melbourne to learn more about his rise to fishing fame and his success as a tackle shop owner. We discuss drone fishing, Paul's incredible story, and the hard truths about making a name for yourself in the industry today. I was born and raised in Victoria, Australia, but my parents are Dutch. They flew out here on a boat, actually, in the 50s. My two eldest sisters were born in Holland, and me and my two brothers were born here. Wow. What brought them out here? Uh, Basically, there was ads in the magazines in Holland saying, go to Australia, it's the most incredible place. And my parents were obviously had a young family and they were going to grow their family. And there was all these bikini-clad women <laughs> on beaches and it just looked like they were trying to sell the country. And my parents just thought, look, Holland's nice, but Australia looks amazing and we want to do the best for our children. So their entire families, both mum, son and dad, all relocated to Australia. They ended up, a lot of them ended up going back and oh. then they went, come back again. And eventually mum and dad settled here. My, all of mum's sisters and brothers went back. A lot of dad's brothers and sisters went and come back. It was really weird. because Why? Why go back? I think they just felt so homesick. My grandfather was a policeman, a really high policeman. And when he came to Australia, he's gone from being the top of command to he's digging holes and he's a foreigner and he's being treated poorly. Mm. So he really struggled with that chain of command. So he went back to Holland. Then he realised Australia was good. But in the end, they settled back there. And uh, mum and dad, fortunately... Just fell in love with Australia and I'm a very happy camper. (laughs) No kidding. Okay, so did they fish? Never. So it's really weird. I'm the youngest of five kids. Mm -hmm. Mum, dad, none of my brothers and sisters ever had any interest in fishing. My brother Robert went a couple of times with a friend. He had a rod and reel, I still remember it. It was a Shakespeare Omni. I used to go in his bedroom, just look at it and go, oh my God, it's a fishing rod and reel. (laughs) And he'd go in the bay and catch flathead sometimes. Yeah. But he never took me because I was his painful young brother. And that was probably the only thing that I had close to fishing growing up. So how did it start? I don't really know, but I've thought about this a lot because obviously this has been this big journey, but I grew up on a farm, about we call it a farm, 21 acres. And because I'm the youngest and four years younger than my brother, I was at home a lot by myself. Mm. So I used to climb trees. I tell my boy now, I was up a tree every day looking at magpie nests and eggs and just fascinated by wildlife. And I was a big bird lover. And when it came to birds and twitching, I could, I could count how many birds I saw. I could add them to my list. But when I looked at the dam, I had no idea it was in there. Oh. And it just fascinated me to think what lies beneath. And I had this dream, maybe if you could pump all the water out and see the eels <laughs> and the yabbies. And the, so if someone came over from Holland, a relative, and they liked fishing and we went down the dam and he showed me how to fish, we caught nothing. Okay. And I think that was just like, oh, there's this possibility here. So I just fell in love with it and I became the world's greatest textbook fisherman because <laughs> these are the days before Google. So the library had three fishing books. So I'd go to the library and I'd read every little thing. And I knew everything about fishing, but I'd never caught a fish in my <laughs> <Okay>. life. <laughs> you and, sound like 90% of the people on the internet these yeah, days. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, I haven't changed. So I thought I knew everything. But uh, yeah, so I, list, I just had this passion because I couldn't do it. I just wanted to 
do it more. Like it was just this thing, it's so exciting, it's real. I can, when I drive past the bay, I'd think, oh, I wonder what's out there. I remember going to a fish and chip shop as a kid, like on a Friday night, we had fish and chips, and on the wall was one of those really bad posters with a little snapper and a couple of garfish, and I just looked at it going, oh, that's a snapper. It's a real <laughs> snapper. Like, wow, I couldn't believe. <laughs> so if I look back then and, and think what I've been able to do now, just uh, uh, it's mind-blowing, but it was just that step, and then I was in year seven, at school, so that's the first first year of high school in Australia, and they had a thing called Activities Week, which I think is the greatest thing ever. And base is about 20 activities, and you get to pick the one you like the most just for a different experience. And unfortunately, even though you'd look at me now and laugh, I was state level at running, long jump, and athletics. I think I held every record at the Cram Little Athletics Club for years, like every single event, every, and I didn't train, I was just I just could run. So one of the camps was athletics camp. So they automatically put me on that because they thought, well, he should go. And there was a fishing camp. Mm. And I remember there was only limited spots and I missed out. And I think I might've cried, even though I'm not proud to admit that because oh. I missed out on this fishing camp. It's so, so horrible. It's like destroying <laughs> dreams of yeah. a child. So I went, but I went to the, um, I remember his name, Mr. Powell. I went to him and said, look, you know, he was the PE teacher and I love PE. And I said, I've just got to do this. And I, I put my case forward and they made a place for me on the fishing camp. And I'll never forget the first day was all theory and everyone brought little tackle box along. This sounds so weird. And we watched videos and we did start and we, and then the, this sounds real. I don't know why I got to be a fisherman. <laughs> and then the next day was our first fishing trip and we actually went off Rosebud, which is about 20 Ks further down the coast. It was $8 to go on the fishing charter and we were fishing for flathead. And I actually borrowed my brother's rod and reel, the one that I'd seen years before. Did you tell him? Yeah, I told him. Okay. Well, he knows, he knows now. And uh, I thought it was a chance we might catch snapper. So not knowing, I took the line off and I thought snapper grow pretty big. So I put 40-pound line on because I thought I might get a 40-pounder. Unfortunately, not enough 40-pound line fit on the reel. So literally, I was not even making it to the bottom. I had to drop the tip of the rod down. But I still managed to catch four flathead about 25 centimetres long, about 10 <laughs> inches. And was the first fish I ever caught in my life. And I took them home. And I, I cleaned them to within an inch of their life. There was nothing left, like, because I had no idea. And I just thought, this is the greatest thing ever. So we went to a trout farm. I caught a trout. I've still got a photo of me with the trout swinging off my rod. And from that minute on, I just had to do it. You were now, like 12? Yep. Wow. I just had to go fishing. It was just, it was this, I've never taken drugs. But <laughs> if I did, I imagine that's what the feeling must be like. It was just euphoric. I just couldn't believe how exciting it was and why everyone wasn't doing it. So is that what you wanted to do, you know, when you grew up? No, I, I don't think I'm 45 now. I still don't know what I want to do when I grow up. Okay. I'll figure it out one day. <laughs> uh, that all just sort of come about in, I think you can plan your life and you can hope for things, but pretty rare that's going to happen. And I think it'd be pretty sad if it did happen. There's just all these doors, these sliding doors that move open and close. And, and what actually happened was we moved off the farm and I, again, I, I ran away from home because I loved living there so much. I said to mum, I'm running away from home. So I walked in the driveway, which is very long, and she came and picked me up and brought me home again. Okay. And then I walked three times. She came and picked me up from the end of the drive because I couldn't go any further. And she said, if you come again and run away, you can walk home yourself. So I didn't do it again. But I was so sad to be leaving the farm, that way of life, just the peace and tranquility. And we moved into the big smoke, which really, which Cranbourne, which isn't really the big smoke, but we had neighbours and stuff. And as it turned out, that changed my life and put me on this path because we moved homes. I remember being on my bike one day and I saw this guy 
pull up out the front of a house that was for sale and he had a boat on the back of his car. Oh. And I'm thinking to myself, hmm, this is interesting. So I rode over my bike. I was 13 years old. Said, g'day, how are you going? And had a chat and he said, look, maybe one day I'll take you fishing. And I thought, how good is this? So we've become friends. Obviously, I've got this ulterior motive thing. How cool is this? We've become really, really good friends. And he basically taught me how to fish. And he was a very keen snapper fisherman in Port Phillip Bay. And he said to me, I'll get you your first snapper. And I still remember the first day I fished him. I still remember my first snapper ever. It was the 29th of October, about 6.30 a.m., Port Phillip Bay, I remember what I was wearing. It was so daggy, but this fish was daggy. Probably, you know, you can't say that to a North American audience. They like, have no idea what that uh, means. <laughs> really, really bad, trashy. <laughs> uh, we're talking about a fish that would have weighed two kilos, five pounds. I still remember. My, I was so nervous and excited. My knees were actually knocking together. Like it was like this is crazy. And I've got a really bad photo of me with that fish. And from there, I just never looked back. Just the more it's like the more you do it, the more you want to do it. There's just that thing about, it. and you have a bad day you forget very quickly mm. because you remember that next good day and the next possibility of the good day. So that was sort of – you could not, never plan that. No. Um, we become really good friends. He then saw an ad in the local paper to join a fishing club. And in those days, fishing clubs are a big deal. Sadly, they're not anymore because you used to go to a fishing club to get information. Now it's all at your fingertips. So he joined a fishing club. He said, look, I think you should come along. And then we started meeting other people. We then met a person in that fishing club – called Greg and Greg said, I'm thinking about opening a tackle store. So I'm like 14 at this stage and he's going to open a tackle store in the town I live in. I'm thinking, how good's this? So, Oh, there was no tackle shop there before? No, the tackle shops, just the nearest one was 20 kilometres away. Tackle stores were just hard to find. Okay. So he was going to open this tackle store. So I'm going fishing with these people. I'm learning, so I said to him, I'd like to help. So literally every spare minute I had, I was riding my bike down to the shop and I was helping him paint fixtures, move this, help with that. And... My dad then said to me, because he's old school and Dutch, which is a good thing, he said, you're nearly 15, yeah. you've got to get a job. Mm-hmm. And I'm like- well, So were you just volunteering there? Yeah, just volunteering. <laughs> okay. So he said, you've got to get a job. So that had the volunteering sort of had sort of the thought process that started, but my sister worked at Kmart and they put my name down and he made me, and I must admit, I disliked him immensely for it because all of a sudden my Saturdays and Sundays where I fished were gone. And they put me in the gardening section. So oh. I'm, I'm 14. I know nothing about plants and I'm watering plants in a red bow tie every Friday night. <laughs> Disliked it immensely. But they had a sporting goods section. So I'm thinking I've got to somehow get from garden to sporting, but everyone wanted to work in sporting goods because it was mm. all the fishing gear, the footies. The... So I got to know some of the managers and the guy who ran the toy department called Sam Hayes, he loved fishing. So I, on my lunch break, took Sam into sporting goods, showed him the rod he needed, taught him how to catch a snapper. He went out and had some success. I got moved to sporting goods. So, you guys in the snapper, like it's literally shaping your entire life at this point. It is because in Victoria, it's like, it's the king's, it's the king's salmon of Victoria. Like it's the, it's our ultimate fish. Yeah. Let me just derail this conversation for a minute. I've got to admit that I'm very surprised. So you know how people here wear these like fishing jerseys? And sometimes they have these fancy graphics or these, you know, illustrative cartoon drawings of yep. fish. I was a little taken aback when I saw jerseys with like snapper on them and brim on them, you know, because to me, that's just like a fish that you go out and you catch to eat, but it's not a sports fish. But here, I mean, it's a highly sought out. I mean, it's a sports fish, right? Is a, that a snapper is in Victoria it is the most highly regarded sport fish by a mile. But why? And, is, well, I mean, don't you just drop your lure and jig, 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 yeah, catch it, yeah, take it home yeah, and eat it? Yeah, but it's not that easy in Victoria. 
And the other thing is too, to put it in perspective, it's, it's all fishing is marketing because in Europe, 80% of the fishery is carp. Yeah. Now in Australia, we dig a hole, hit them on the head. Yeah. But they're spending billions on carp because it's been marketed in such a way that people grow up respecting that fish and loving it. Just like someone might be Insta famous in one country, another country, no one knows who they are. It's what people have been marketed. And the snapper has always been that pedestal fish. And that's why, and, and they are, like, they're not easy to catch. So if you can get, I know people have spent hundreds of thousands of dollars in 20 years and never caught one. What kind of snapper are they? Are they a red snapper? Uh, we call them a pink snapper. Pagus aratus or Chrysophorus aratus is the scientific name. They change it for some reason, but they're not actually a true snapper. So the snapper family, and this is where it's confusing for Americans, and the, the true snapper are Eulogianets. So your jacks, they call them a snapper. Your black puppy and black bass is a black snapper. So the snapper is actually part of the Brim and Tarwine family. Oh, click. Okay. So that it's, makes sense. Yeah. So the pink snapper, the best one, if you look up Pagus aratus, you'll see it. And it's actually its own little – they get them through Dubai in those areas, but they're not like a snapper that you get in other countries. So are you – are they still in the rocks though? No. They, we catch them on sand, mud, edge of reef. Uh, okay. So they're literally more a, a, an ocean – bay dwelling fish so they're not like exploded when they come up i know when no. i catch them in canada they i i catch snapper when i'm halibut fishing and their eyes have exploded out and their tongues are hanging out so it's not no, like that so our snapper don't really suffer from barotrauma oh. which is really good and most of them are caught in less than 20 meters of water so they have time so they release pretty well mm-hmm. i have caught them in 250 meters of water and even that fish released pretty well how big do they get the biggest one I've ever physically seen and been on the boat when it was caught was 44 pounds. Okay, that's a, me- a big fish. A, a metre one. It was a big fish. We released that fish and it swam away. But uh, look, a real good one, the magic mark is 20 pounds. Okay. If you catch a 20-pound snapper, a pink snapper, it's pretty good. And we were last week fishing in Perth using drones to drop our baits 300 metres off the beach and we caught pink snapper to seven and a half kilos in the middle of the day. We're going to be talking about that. It's amazing. It's funny. So my buddy just got back from Perth actually last night. <laughs> and go. at nine o'clock last night, I drove to the airport and picked up his big his bag of fish because he doesn't have a freezer. And so he said, you know, I could have half this bag of fish. And I was taking these beautiful snapper fillets. I mean, I'm assuming that's what they are. It says red on them and they've got bright red flesh. Is that snapper? Uh, it depends. It's a tough one. I, I just bought a box of fish home from Perth. Yeah. Like literally balching groper, West Australian Jewfish, crayfish. Um, but they actually get a lot of fish over there. Like they have the red, red, the red skin. Yeah. And they look like a snapper. They're not. They could be one of many species. Like oh my be, god! It could okay. be a red emperor. It's, that's why. <laughs> it could be anything. That's why you're really, even though it's boring and at dinner parties, people won't talk to you. You can really only talk about fish using their scientific name. Right, yeah. Like, because otherwise, I, I was in uh, New Guinea once and I was 200 miles from the middle of nowhere. We actually went into villages where they'd never seen white people. And I lifted my T-shirt up and showed the kids my belly and they ran into the jungle crying. So, like, it was the middle of nowhere. Like, I, I, it was the most incredible experience. So, I'm talking to the guy in broken English and, and I'm saying, what fish do you catch? And he goes, bluefin. Uh. We speared the bluefin. And I kept trying to explain, and I went on for like an hour. And he goes, I, I paddleboard, spear, bluefin, six feet long. And I tried everything, bluefin, trevally, blue, and in the end, he, he goes, bluefin, bluefin. And on my camera case was a little sabre rod sticker with a sailfish on it. He goes, bluefin, bluefin. Oh, my God. Yeah, see, so you just – so, or like kingfish. You guys have a different meaning yeah, so, here so than it is. kingfish is Cereoli lalandi, which is yellowtail kingfish. Yours is a Spanish mackerel, we call it. And it is so, and even, even worse than that, like I can, I can understand if I cross the border into South Australia, 
my yellow belly, my golden perch, which yeah. is a fr- becomes a callop. Oh, it's just too confusing. It's, okay, so Latin names for the win. Sadly, and, and that's really, really boring and you have, to, you have to have too much time on your hands, but it is a fun game to play with people like, so what is Istiophorus platypateris? Oh, no. Well, no wonder no one wants to talk to you at dinner. <laughs> exactly. I'm boring. <laughs> or like Australian salmon. Yes, that so. was really confusing to me. When people told me that, I was like, oh, they must be escapees from some sort of fish farm, Australian salmon. But they're the so they're, called, they're called a kawai in New Zealand, yeah. not in Australia. In a, it's Arapus trutta. You actually know all these Latin names. I know a few. So Arapus trutta is the Australian salmon. It sounds uh, like an old, an old school actor. It's yeah, like it's Eric weird, yeah, yes, uh, <laughs> And uh, on stage left is Arapus trutta. Legend <laughs> has it that when Captain Cook came to Australia, yeah. they caught Arapus trutta off the boat. And because they were English, they reminded them of the salmon back home. So they just said these are Australian ah. salmon, but they're not related in any way, shape or form. No. Uh, but they're an incredible fish. I was just in Western Australia catching them like 12 pounds and they're a sports fish. Not good eating at all. Uh, they are good eating. Well. I went to this fancy restaurant in New Zealand mm-hmm. and saw it on the menu and I thought to myself, I, I just have to give it a go. It was ridiculously good. So, so that's an interesting point. I, I agree. Eating any fish is subjective. So I say, because people ask me all the time, what's the best fish to eat? Yeah. And, and I might say salmon and you might say, but eating fish to me is like drinking wine. I have this theory that if you are with wonderful people, like imagine you, husband, daughter, you've just caught beautiful salmon, there's bears around, the sun's setting, and you crack a cheap bottle of wine that you bought – Tastes it'll, pretty good. It'll taste amazing. You'll never <laughs> and you'll go and you go buy another one one day. But you can have the best bottle of Penfolds Grange worth a thousand dollars at a meeting with somebody you don't like because you have to be there, and it'll be pretty average. <laughs> so I think I think when it comes to eating fish, it's the same. Like if experience, you, just yeah, to have caught it and present presentation, and also knowing I was in it was a very high end restaurant. So there is that little bit of a feel too, right? It's yes. like, it can't be, it can't go wrong. It, and you know what? It's costs, costs a fortune. Costs a, and any fish will taste good. Like I've seen some stuff that Greeks and Italians and, and Thai friends do with fish. I'm not a big fan of eating pink snapper, but when you go to this Thai restaurant, my friend owns, it's the greatest fish in the world. Gotcha. So it's it. But Subjective, right. but different. But let's get back to this Kmart thing. So you've got your little red bow tie, and now you're the boss, and you're working in the. Well, I'm in the. Sp- I'm not the boss, but I'm. I'm in the. No, I'm, I know. I, yeah, I'm, in, I'm. I'm with about three other guys in the sporting section, so I've got customers coming in and literally asking for fishing advice, which doesn't happen in Kmart. And I build this little customer base. Oh. Of people who would come in on Saturdays just to see me, and because I was fishing all the time, and I'd tell them go here, do that. They're catching fish, so. It's really weird. This is so embarrassing. But at the fishing club, everyone had a nickname. So I got called the Kmart Kid because I was this little <laughs> kind of cute it's, though. Yeah, yeah. Was, it was when I was 15. Um, You're not still called that, are you? I still get customers come to my shop today and ask if Kmart's around. That is hilarious. It's, it happens about twice a year, <laughs> but it's, the boys just laugh and go, no, he's not here today. Um, so I was working there, doing good. And then this shop sort of thing came up in the background and I wanted to work at a fishing, a real hardcore fishing tackle shop. And I'll never forget, I went to my dad and said, I want to work in this shop. What do you think? And he goes, As you, maybe stick with the big company. It's safe, all this sort of stuff, Kmart. And I, fair enough. So I worked, I'd work Saturday mornings at Kmart till one o'clock. I'd jump on my BMX and then I'd ride to the fishing tackle store and I'd work there till six o'clock. And I'd work there Friday night. So anytime I wasn't at school or at Kmart, I was working at the fishing shop. And I worked there for a year for nothing. 
Never got paid. Your dad didn't jump on that? No, because I was working at Kmart. That was my job. This was my hobby. I'm just surprised he didn't go in and give the owner a talking to. No, no, it's good. It was literally, I just wanted to be there. Yeah. It was, and, and the owner was awesome. I didn't, I just wanted to be a part. And I could come and go. It wasn't very official, whatever. Um, and eventually he came to me and said, Paul, if you're going to continue to be here all the time, I need to pay you. It's not. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's when I went over to dad and I said, look, this opportunity in there, we had a chat and it was nice. And we decided, look, it's a big risk but we'll give it a go, <laughs> which is so funny. Oh, no more Kmart yeah. benefits. I think we're talking. Not working up I the think ladder. we're talking at the time like $5 an hour. Yeah. We're doing big, big bucks. <laughs> so that was around, it was around August 1989. So this August, it's 30 years since Christy and I started working there and um, literally started there and I just worked, went to school, worked Thursday nights, Friday nights, all day Saturday, all day Sunday, every school holidays, every single day I worked in the shop. Wait, Christy worked there with you? Yeah, so that, that's the next oh, interesting I'll part. I'll let you get there. I don't want to rush you. <laughs> that's fine. Um, so I started there when I was, I think I was 15. Christy started there when she was nine or 10. What? It's, it's a, it's a, it all makes sense in the end. So I was working there and we'll go, I'll, I'll go back a step. So I'm working there. The guy who owned the tackle shop is Christy's dad. No way. He's the one who started it up? Yes. Oh. oh so the plot thickens. The plot thickens. So Christy starts working at the shop while working. She comes to, after she's 10. She makes cups of tea. She cleans the thing. She's spending an hour or so or whatever. And eventually she starts working at the shop just as helping her dad. So we were basically running the business on the weekends, the two of us. And you're 15. I'm 15. She's nine. Yeah, she's like 10, nine. So you're not looking at her like that. No, no. We were just no. friends. So. Yeah. So literally though, by the time I was 16 and she was 10 or 7, I literally had days where I, I opened and closed the shop by myself, ran it all day, which was pretty cool. And, and I remember I set myself a goal because in a fishing tackle store, there's like 10,000 different items. It's scary. And you've got people coming in randomly going, I'd like a size 6 tie happy tickler. Now, that's obviously a wet fly that looks a bit like a yabby. If you don't know that stuff in Australia... You're going to look like a goose. I would have thought someone was looking for a rub and tug. <laughs> for real. That's what I would think. <laughs> a tie happy tickler. Um, and there are all these. Then they might have asked for Mrs. Simpson, which is another, you know, Mrs. Simpson? No. That's another famous Australian wet fly. So, but then the next person could say, oh, what do I run my transducer on my depth sound? And the next person wants to go marlin fishing. So to learn the answer to every random question that, and next thing it pops out and you go, what the? And fly fishing scared me because I wasn't, I didn't, it was new. Yeah. Now I think why did it scare me? Because it makes sense. But did you sell fly gear there too? Yes, we did. Oh, so yep. f- a fully, st- I mean, a, a proper show. Pro, pro tackle store, a- anything from dry flies for trout to thousand pound black male. We pretty much tried to have everything we could. What was it called? It was at the time it was called Cram and Bait and Tackle. Okay. Because it was old school. So my goal I set myself was for the first day but I could get through an entire day without having to ring the boss to ask him a question. And I remember it happened. I was like 16. I got through an entire day where I could answer every single question through learning. And that was pretty cool because then I knew I could pretty much run day to day, the business, whatever. So finished high school. I got the opportunity to manage the business, had another big chat with my parents. And we decided that if I wanted to do that one day, I could in the future, but probably ideal that I go and further my education, look at something else. So Victoria, the state of Victoria was in big trouble economically, things were pretty tough. Thought I'd go to uni. I've always been a believer that you should only ever do things you love. Like I couldn't do accounting or I just, it's not me. So what I was going to do, I was going to become a PE teacher. So I did four years of secondary physical education teaching at Rusden, the highest 
PE school in Victoria. Were you paying for your own education? Yep. With your the money you were making at the shop? Yep. So See, I know the end of the story, and I know that was a complete waste of money, but I'll let you continue. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I had a hex bill of tens of thousands of dollars, which I paid for. Did four years. Whilst I was doing the four years, I continued to work at the shop. Like, I literally didn't do what other kids at uni did. They were out Thursday nights, Saturday nights. I didn't go to the parties, which I regret a little bit, but I was literally at work seven o'clock every Saturday morning, Sunday morning. I was doing about minimum 40 hours a week, I reckon, as well as uni. And I I'd worked my roster out. So I got all three days of uni where into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. So I could go trout fishing Thursday, Friday, work Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. So still get to fish. And then, and because you're young, you burn the candle at both ends. You mm-hmm. just, I remember my mum just saying, stop burning the candle, but you just do it. So I fished still two or three days a week, went to uni. And then in the meantime, and this is sort of funny. So in the meantime, there somewhere, Christy and I were like the best mates. And there was no other thought of anything. We used to go fishing together. It's still funny. I remember going trout fishing one day to a secret little creek, which I won't name, but only so it doesn't get too much pressure. But I literally fell in. So Christy's like 15 and I'm 21 or whatever. I've got a girlfriend. She's got a boyfriend. We go fishing. I fell in and I'm saturated in the middle of winter. I'm cold. So I drop her off at her parents' house and I'm just wearing my undies. Nothing else. But that was just normal because we were mates. And I look back at it now and think, they must have thought I was so strange. But I literally... I had nothing else. I was, and I think, hmm, but there was still. Her parents saw you? Yeah, I dropped her off at home. I'm, here you go. I told them. I fell in the creek, whatever. But now you look back and go, they must have thought that was pretty strange. So I was very close to her parents. I still am. They're incredible people. And eventually, Christy and I hit it off. And I'm happy to say for the record, she was 16. <laughs> <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> so we hit it off and um, it was like the best thing in the world because we were literally the closest of friends like it was just this incredible bond and I always thought well this will never happen because she's younger than me and she always thought well that never happened because he's old but we just love fishing we've spent so much time together that yeah it ended up becoming what I think is a great love story that I had no idea about that is incredible yeah you've been together your whole lives basically I've known her since she was I think since she was six years old and she turns 40 this year and it's really weird and I've said it before but I reckon from the moment I met her in a non-deviant, not I always knew that I'd love her forever or marry her. It's just this weird when she was like six. Oh, Just like there was something and it was so non-wrong. It was just this feeling I had that she was something special. I don't know what it was. Yeah. And so we, we're then working in the shop. I've got to get my timeline right here because I don't want to say the wrong thing. It's okay. As in, so I think we hooked up in January. This is correct. So we hooked up in late January and um, we actually hooked up at a place called Flinders Island, which is between Victoria and Tasmania. Hooked up in America means something different. Oh, we just, we just kissed for the first yeah, time. Yeah, I know. It took, me, it took me a long time to figure that out, right. that hooked up means something else yeah, now. So but yeah, so that you was guys the day we literally got think, together. There's a future here. But we didn't tell anyone because we were scared. Yeah. Like she was younger, I was older, what were people going to say? So we just sort of kept it on the low down for a while. And I'll never forget, it's May, the same year. So we've hooked up in January, it's May. And I'm fishing off Bermagui and I'm having the best time ever catching albacore, yellowfin tuna. And I get a message from her father, who owns the business, who's my boss. Who doesn't know about you guys. Who doesn't know, no one knows. And I was scared of him. And he says to me, Paul, he left a message. When you get back from this trip, I need to come and see you. We need to have a serious chat. Oh, no. And I'm Ooh. like, oh, I'm in trouble here. <laughs> so I didn't sleep for like four days on this fishing trip. Finally drive home. And he'd always taught me. 
and, and he taught me a lot of really good things, but he said to me, if you know you're in trouble and you've done the wrong thing and you ever, a boss ever sits down, beat them to the punch. Just say, yep, I did this. And then it, he said, it takes the wind out of their sails and at least you might be able to sneak. So he says, I live with mum and dad at the time. He says, I'm coming to your house. So I have not- I'm With just, a rifle. Yeah, with a rifle. I'm like, oh my God, oh my God. And um, he knocks on the door and he's got a chicken, a hot chicken. <laughs> what? Coleslaw. Oh, like a rotisserie chicken. Yeah, yeah. And, and some <laughs> chips and he sits him down the table, let's have some lunch. And, you know, this is like the last supper. So, <laughs> so I literally say, Greg, before you say anything, and I was about to just say, he goes, no, don't interrupt me. I'm here because I want you to buy my business. Oh, wait, what? And I'm like, excuse me? And literally, he had no idea about Christy and I, he wanted to sell me the business because I was 22, I was out of uni and he's like, I can see you're young, you can do something, I've had seven years, I'm a bit over it, whatever, and I think you can make a go of it. So I've like, I've picked myself off the floor because I never saw this coming, I'm thinking I'm late, I'm scared. So we talked about it and then I went away and I talked to mum and dad and my dad, who again, wise man, he said, you're never going to be able to do this without our support. And I didn't want their support because I didn't want them to have to. So I remember ringing at 22. I remember ringing like every bank in Australia, trying to borrow money. Yeah. Lend money, however it works. I just all laughed. Because you hadn't started your job as a PE teacher yet. Nothing. Oh, I did three days. Okay. So I did three days. (laughs) But no paycheck. No, I think I got paid a hundred bucks a day. So I did three days emergency teaching, but I was sort of taking a gap year to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, had no money. I think I I had $7,000 in the bank and I had to borrow hundreds of thousands. And in the end... Uh, my dad was spot on. So I got a thing called vendor finance, which is when the owner of the business lends you money that on the cost and then you're paying back as you almost like you rent the business. Mm. So that was great. And we had to borrow, I don't know if it, the sum was $100,000 was the deposit. That's a lot of money back then. It's a lot of money, especially when you got nothing. Yeah. And my parents are not well off. So my dad and my mum, to their credit, put their house up. Oh my God, they really had faith they in you. They mortgaged their house for the $100,000. And I, again, didn't sleep. And I like, I was terrified. There's no other way to do it. And that was all they had. That was it. And they owned it and they worked hard for it. So the pressure was intense. But I got in there and I'd already been doing some stuff in the media. I'd been, I was, I loved the idea of just radio. At the time, radio was really, really big. And newspaper articles were big. And I'd caught this fish, a Mako shark off Phillip Island about a year before and again, dad keeps popping up. He said, write down everything that happened that day because he was with me and he's not a fisherman. Write it down because one day you'll forget. So I wrote it all down and I had these good photos that I'll send into a fishing magazine and they published it. So that was my first fishing article I ever wrote. And that, that then started that. So I started writing full of fishing magazines. And when I bought the business, I was doing fishing magazines and I was doing different stuff. But I thought I can either be a guy who owns a tackle shop in Cranbourne who will do this till he's 65 People will wander in. I can imagine myself in a rocking chair whittling a piece of wood at the front of the tackle shop with all the old boys one day. The Kmart kid who just yeah. stayed in the shop. Correct. Or I can try and take this to the next level. And because I was young and I was fairly full on, I can try and make it the best tackle store in the world. Why not? And I thought at the time I remember thinking like um, some very famous athletes and things at the time we're getting paid money by Nike. Like you knew $100,000 to wear Nike shoes. Oh, or, Nike. Yeah, what well, Nike, yeah, sorry, Nike. Adidas. <laughs> and what do you guys say here? Ad, Adidas? Uh, it's Adidas. Yeah. But I couldn't afford to get anyone to endorse my business because I had a massive debt. I was nobody. So I thought if I can just become a little bit of something in the fishing industry, I can endorse my business for free and I can make people want to come to my business rather than someone else's. So I just got on this train of just trying to self-promote 
and doing three radio – I think at the peak it was maybe four or five radio shows a week, phone interviews, um, every Friday morning a two-hour show that I used to go into, plus I was working – the shop was open 365 days a year. Oh, oh. So on, even on Christmas Day we opened and we had a barbecue and fed the homeless. Like oh. we literally ne- – and I worked every day. I think I did 185 days straight before I had a breakdown. Yeah. And that, but then I was at work the next morning. And, and things, like, things just snowball and happen, whatever, and I just, kept, I just kept going. And one thing led to another. And basically I think – I remember thinking to myself because television was pretty – really big, Rex Hunt Fishing Adventures was huge – that if I could get one half hour of television, I reckon that would be worth a thousand fishing articles. And Facebook, there's no social media. Yeah, so you literally had to buy an ad in the paper or you had to get something for free. So I kept, because I did fishing reports for Rex Weekly and I did a radio show with him, I kept putting up ideas for shows, but they kept falling on deaf ears, which I understand because I imagine how many offers I must have got. And back then, fishing television was on mainstream television, right? Mainstream. It wasn't like now where you've got these side channels or subscription channels. Yes, this was like uh, 5.30 Saturday night on Channel 7 and everyone watched it. It was like the pinnacle. So it just went on for years and years and, and I can't remember all the steps in between, but eventually I put up an offer and I said, we need to go and do this. And I know now making fishing television, it's all about timing. And if someone rung me at the right time, the right, I would go, let's go tomorrow. But if they ring at the wrong time, it's like I'm booked for three months or two hours. And I must have got the right time. So we went down to Port Albert and I sort of organised the trip. So Port Albert's about 200 kilometres into Gippsland, past my shop. I sort of organised the trip and I didn't realise I was going to be a part of the trip. And I said, oh, would it be right if I come along and watch? So which show, was this for Rex's show? Yes. Okay. What, just, what was happening with your relationship at this point? Um, awesome. Okay. But not married yet? No. So... We, Did her dad kill you when he found out? No, no. Eventually, so eventually that um, look. Eventually, everyone just figured it out. Yeah, and it was all it was all sweet. Okay. Um, there was a, there was a few rough moments there with a few people, but <laughs> but um, yeah, it's it's like all things in life they go full circle. And what upsets someone at one moment, they now look back on and realise it's probably what's made them one of the happiest people in their lives. Yeah. So there was definitely moments, right. um, which which. We've all moved on from. Yeah. Sure. And, and now, now everyone's waving a big happy flag. <laughs> but you were on top of the world. And uh, now you're about to go and do some filming with Rex Hunt. Yeah. And the, but you weren't going to be on the show. No, I didn't think so. So I'm literally just going along. I, I organized the trip. That was my, because I, I, it's hard to organize it. But and why? What was in it for you to organize I just wanted it? to be a part of it. Like, okay. This is the pinnacle at the time, the pinnacle of fishing, television. It's like. And, and his show was huge. It was bigger than huge. It was like massive. And and he was a hero. Like literally this guy is someone, if you're into fishing and you were my age, you looked up to him, no one else. Well, he's an ex-football. Well, was he still a football player no, at the time? long past. But still an ex-football player. He's on mainstream television. He's got the fishing show of all shows and you're about to have an opportunity with him. Yeah. So I like couldn't sleep. So we go down and I remember the very first morning we're going out in the boat and um, the sound at the time, but it sound said to me, oh, can I put this microphone on your back? And I said, why? That's how naive I was. Why? He goes, because you're filming the show with Rex today. And I almost had a heart attack. <laughs> like I literally almost died. I thought I was just there to watch. And we had glass conditions, like glass. Now, where we were, you never get glass conditions. Always, so it was glass. We get to the spot and we do a piece to camera, which luckily I nailed and I was fairly confident and happy with. My sinker hit the bottom and it was the most beautiful thing ever. And, and the cameraman's looking at me side on. I can only see one eye like one eye, and I looked at him and I said, is that thing rolling? And he goes, I just get the nod, yep. And as it hit the bottom, I felt this massive snapper 
just go. And I went. Again, a snapper? Yeah, a snapper. <laughs> I, I, they just keep popping up, don't they? And I said, I actually said, well, cop this. And I went and hooked this fish. Now, this fish was close to 20 pounds, the magic mark. So in the boat, we've been there 30 seconds. It's going, bang, but I dropped down again. Bang, I think it was 18 pounds. Oh. We just smashed it. It was just one of those days. Like you have those days that you can't expect. It was one of those days. So, And on film, which like never, never happens. happens. Um, so I'm there filming with my hero. I've just caught incredible fish. I'm actually going to be on a fishing television show that I think is the pinnacle of all time. And it is just like, no way. So then they say, after this trip, you got any other ideas? I said, oh, we could go out off Phillip Island fishing for mako sharks. Now, the best I'd ever done off Phillip Island myself, and I've done a bit of it, is maybe raised two in a day. This day was 40. It was horrible. The worst day. Couldn't get to the spot we wanted. We raised seven. And they said, that was pretty good. Got any other ideas? So I said, oh. <laughs> and I remember on the third trip we did, I was dressed like a bum because I, I had tracky pants. And, and the producer actually came up and said, you probably want to start dressing a bit better now that you're part of the show. And I'm like, what? do you what? mean I'm yeah, part of the show? What? And, what? and obviously you're too scared. And, and he said, yeah, you're going to come on more trips. You're, you're a part of this now. And literally without knowing it, I'd become co-host of this fishing show and I spent the next four years travelling Australia with him and the crew going to most incredible places as his co-host on Rex Hunt Fishing Adventures. Did you just drop down? It, it was just the most incredible and it's sort of – looking back on it, you just go, wow, but because you're in the process it's happening, it's just so damn exciting and then the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, but you're literally pinching yourself because – you Did you ever it. ask yourself why you? I mean, he, there would have been a lineup of people who wanted that. I reckon it was the right place, the right time, and I'd probably asked 100 times and maybe the other people only asked 99. Seems like that's a recurring theme in the show is that people, you just have to take a chance and ask and ask again and ask again. Eventually somebody may if, take a chance if on you, you. If you want it bad enough, the other, the other thing I always say to young people particularly, when I was working at Kmart, a lot of the time I was sweeping the back room, but I reckon if you're sweeping the back room, if you're serving a customer, if you clean the toilets, my philosophy was do it the best you can because you just never know who's watching. And and if the right person sees the right thing, if you're consistent, eventually it's going to go your way. So I was big on just doing the job the best you could and I think that could be a bit of that European work ethic that I got from my parents and, that's, and that helped me at Kmart too because the number one head guy in the whole place – he grabbed me, took me under his wing, and I spent three months just working as his little helper. And people used to go, why is he with the – and I just – whatever. And I was like his first mate or whatever. But it's the same, I think. I didn't give up on the Rex thing. I just kept – and I did radio for years with him. I did a fishing show appearance. I just did all those things. And eventually I think when you ask someone the first time and you don't know them, it might be a bit weird. But as you get to know someone over a period of time, obviously he thought, well, this is worth a look. I also did an episode on Escape with ET, which is another show we have in Australia. About the same time he was in town, I did a show with him. And I think in a strange way that sort of might have pushed Rex a little bit because he saw that I was doing things moving forward. I was, I was, I'm not putting tickets on myself, but I, I think he could see I was on a mission to get what I wanted. And I thought he probably thought, well, he's gone to this other show. I'd probably prefer him over here if it's going to happen. I don't know if that's the case, but that's how it felt. So we did that for four years and that definitely helped my business. So all of a sudden this little tackle shop in Cranbourne is on national television, the bloke who owns it. They didn't mind putting your show on there? Because a lot of times television people or networks will say, yeah, we'll have you on there, but we're not going to promote your business. Yeah. So I couldn't promote the business directly, but everybody knew that I was the guy who owned the fishing tackle store in Cranbourne. Gotcha. So if people wanted 
to come see me, they come to my shop. And ironically, we did a, we did a segment on the show called Talking Tackle and it was brought to you by Kmart. Oh. <laughs> so I used to do Talking Tackles, brought to you by Kmart. I used to work at Kmart. People were calling it a Kmart kid, but I worked at this tackle shop. And people would say, why would you advertise Kmart? I said, I've got the opportunity to advertise me. Some people go to Kmart, but people will and, – and my business literally just took off. It grew ridiculously. It was at the point – I just remember we moved shops to a, to a shop that I would have never, ever, ever thought we could ever be in. Then we knocked down the wall, took over next door. Then we rented a warehouse out the back to stores. Like it just – Why not start another shop? We did that. <laughs> How many did you start? Well, only two. So this, the second one is in Mornington, which is about seven minutes down the road. Yeah. Because we made this sea change to the peninsula about 11 years ago. My boy was one and we just wanted a better life for him. Uh, so we wanted to move down the beach, down the country. So we moved down here and it was Valentine's Day. I took Christy out for lunch. I'm a good bloke. And <laughs> we're sitting there having a coffee and I looked through the real estate magazine and I saw this building in Mornington and it was Tackle World Blue. And it was literally empty. It was blue. I said, we should go look at this. So and Tackle World already existed. Yes. So I was a member of Tackle World. Because oh, that's just for people listening who aren't from here. That's an enormous chain here in this country, right? Yes. So Tackle World, I joined Tackle World the day I bought the business, 9th of the 9th, 96. And... I'll never forget, I was the, I think at the time there was 17 stores in the group and I was the 17th largest. I was the littlest one. Oh. So I literally went to the first meeting. I was scared they are going to kick me out because he's this 22-year-old kid. I didn't have a credit card. I remember trying to check into a hotel for a business meeting. I said, where's your credit card? I said, I don't have a credit card. Like I, I was just, so this other bloke said, here, use mine and I'll pay. So that's how naive and, and I was just out of my depth. So it took about, I'm going to say a decade. I went from 17th to number one. And that was just built through hard work, having the media behind me, pushing as hard as I can, and just even running a tackle store. It's, everyone thinks that you just go there and play with your sinkers. It's, it's, it's business, it's hard work. This episode of Anchored is brought to you by StoryWorth. If you've been following the show for a while, you know I believe in the importance of storytelling. StoryWorth helps you do this within your own family with a unique and clever idea. Every week, they send your chosen loved one an email asking them a question you may have never thought to ask. After a year of weekly story prompts, StoryWorth compiles these memories into a beautiful hardcover book that can be passed down to future generations. The book is printed with a color cover and black and white interior and is up to 480 pages long. Data is secure and everything is private by default, but you can control who sees your stories and can even invite an unlimited number of people to receive them. This is a great gift for Father's Day and doesn't require battling shoppers for mall parking or stressful pre-ordering deadlines. I've been using my subscription to learn more about my dad and I'm excited for my daughter to do the same. This is also a great way to share with relatives who live farther away than they'd like. With Father's Day fast approaching, StoryWorth is offering $20 off to Anchored listeners. Simply visit storyworth.com forward slash anchored when you subscribe. Again, that's storyworth.com forward slash anchored. The Rex Hunt thing finished in 2004 and we were literally filming the last little bits to put the show together. He just had enough after, and I understand that after 11 years and he was older, he just wanted a break. And we were filming the last bits and pieces down at Warren 8 and uh, my producer said to me, how would you like your own fishing show? I said, hello, like don't be stupid. He goes, no, how about I talk to Channel 10 because they're the ones who are doing this and we'll see. And I said, yeah, and literally blew it off, not a second thought. He rings me two hours later and says, they're keen to give you a look. So we did a pilot and we were lucky because we said to Rex, 
we had done, me and my mate Lee had done this uh, Marlon show without him. I said, can we use that as our pilot? Just, yep. So we literally filmed a little opener and put it at the front of it and I had a truck at the time, an F-150, and my number plate, which goes back to another story, was I fish. And when the truck, we ran out of the building, because this was at a time in television where everyone ran. It was this really weird, but it was that show Weird Eye for the Straight Guy. Yeah. They ran. They ran to the supermarket. They ran. It was like trying to get the momentum. It was just happened everywhere on TV. So my producer wanted us to run everywhere. And it's funny if you look at series one and two of I fish, <laughs> we're running everywhere. It's so, and it's so weird now, but it worked. It was what people did. So we ran out of the building, into the car, and as the car took off, it started on my iFish number plate and then drove away. And about a week later... He rings and says, I've got a name for the show because we were going to call it All Fishmen Are Liars based on that fact that we all exaggerate. And he said, we're going to call it I Fish. And I said, that sucks. That sounds stupid. He goes, no, I love it. It's short. It took me about a week to get used to the idea and that's what we called the show, I Fish. So it's not internet related at all. Nothing it's at all. I Fish. Yeah. So I Fish actually started, and this is really bizarre, I Fish actually started in 1993. I'm going to uni. I finally saved up and bought a car that I wasn't embarrassed. I didn't have to park in the back lot because it, was it wasn't a poo brown Toyota Corolla. And I got this nice car and I thought, I want to put a number plate on it that, that sums up everything I am. So when I drive past someone and I played, and you're allowed to have six letters in Victoria, and I played with a list of hundreds and I finally come up with I fish. But when I drive past someone, they know that that is my identity and it sums it up beautifully. And at this stage, as best to my knowledge, there's never been an iPod, there's never been an iPhone, there's never been an i anything. It was the first, as far as I know, the first time in the history of the world anyone ever put that concept together. So I bought the number plate for $295. Mm-hmm. I've still got it. Christy didn't have a car at the time because she was only 16. She bought the number plate iFish 2, which she still has. Genius. <laughs> and and then I've, I've got this business in 996 and it was called the worst shelf company and I didn't know. So you buy a company, it gives it a sh- – and it was, I won't even repeat it. It's embarrassing. I said to my accountant, do I have to keep this crappy name? He said, no, you can change whatever you want, 100 bucks. I said, okay. And he goes, what do you think? I said, how about iFish? So then my company became iFish Proprietary Limited. Then I started doing the media thing and he said, you need another company because people start to actually pay to do things. So I, come up, I was doing a lot of magazine articles at the time. I, I started iWrite Proprietary Limited. And that was the media side of things. iFish was the business side of things. And then when the show became iFish, it was just a natural progression that we never really realised was going to happen. It stay the same. Stay the same. And it's become – to build a brand in fishing is one of the hardest things ever. I see people try every day. And without even knowing it, I've built one of the stronger brands in fishing in Australia. And it only dawned on me like literally in the last year, hey, I, people know I fish, And it all started from a number plate. Isn't that hilarious? Because you're not going to believe it when I tell you that Fly Gal started from a number plate. No way. Yeah. I were allowed seven. So I had to space, Fly, Space, Gal. And I didn't know what to call my company. <laughs> and my dad said, well, your number plate is Fly Gal. And oh. so here we are. Well, before you leave today, <laughs> I'm taking you to my fishing room to show you my iFish number plate. Oh, I didn't get to keep mine. I have pictures of mine, uh, but I didn't get to keep it. So, um, I, yeah. So, and, and a really ironic thing, nobody knows this, but I'll share it with you. I had a beautiful truck that that number plate was on yeah. and I drove it once every three months. It was my little – it got stolen about four years ago. Oh. And someone burned it to the ground. Oh. But the ironic thing, the police rang and said – oh, the photo, it's gone. Like someone just took it for a joyride and burned it. Two things survived off the wreckage, my iFish number plates. No way. And the police took them off the car and posted them back to me. Oh, that's so nice Everything of them. else was I'm talking – 
gone. Those number plates for some reason survived. And that's why they just mean the world to me. So iFish is currently in its 14th year. That's crazy. Where are you airing? Mainly in Australia, obviously. But we're on, um, we're on the 10 network. We produce 50 episodes of TV a year. Five zero. So, yeah. How do you do that? That's why I look like I'm 90, April, and I'm only 45. <laughs> you don't look like you're 90, but that is insanity. So, since Series 1, 26 eps, Series 2, 26 half hours, Series 3 was 15 hours, Series 4 to 14 is 30 half hours and 10 one hours, but those 10 one hours are normally two halves put together. So, we, every week we must produce half an hour of fishing TV, and to our credit... I believe we produce the best fishing TV in the country. I, th- I really do believe we make great stuff and we're doing it under duress. We are working. We're working in an average day. We're working 18, 19 hours a day. It's got to be a family affair. It is. Um, without Christy, I'm gone. She does. So we've got over 800,000 social media followers and the two of us manage the entire thing. Wow. If you get an answer from us, it's from us. I had someone last night even say, this obviously isn't you, so what I do now I just say, tell, like, tell me how many fingers you'd like held up. And they go, three. I just send them a selfie like this and they go, no <laughs> way. Because otherwise they don't believe you. Um, but I think that's sweet. And I think it's sweet when people go on social media, oh, that fish is photoshopped. Well, it's not, but what the greatest compliment of all time. If they think it's photoshopped, they're Do trying to say that? all the time. Oh, my goodness, mate. Like people literally, every time I put a big fish up, oh, that's bullshit. That's photoshopped. Whatever. Oh, that's so uh, but you know, to me, that's that's just part of the fun. Yeah, just so, say thank you. Yeah, thank, thank you very much for commenting. So – yeah, we've done it all ourselves and without her support and even my son's support, my boy's been on TV since the day he was born. So literally, I think he was two months old and I was going on a trip and I, I did a piece to camera holding him in my arms just because I want him involved and now he, he does the show with me. He's been doing it for 12 years. The experiences that he has got to see, the things he has got to do, like we've been to Alaska twice. Oh, so you guys take the show everywhere. Yeah, we filmed Alaska last year. Oh, um, I was going to ask you how you keep the show different. So it's not just in Australia. No. So the, I think the trick to the show is it's not about fish. It's about people and it's about the places we travel to. And I'm really big on I can never catch my first swordfish again. I can't catch my first snapper again. So you can't be as excited as you were the first time. But if you give someone the opportunity to do that, their excitement is real and you can feed off that. And if you can tell someone's story, that's what I, – I, when I'm filming, I know straight away, I think I start to get this warm feeling that this is just amazing because people are getting their chance to tell their story. Like I got my chance to tell mine on Rex's show for the first time. And then you go to a different place and you show people. People have no idea what's out there in the world. Some of the stuff I learned in Alaska, like you, you can shoot a bear, but you can't wake it up if it's sleeping. You aware of that? You can't wake it up? It's, it's, Are you talking like a legal thing? It's, it's against the law to wake a bear for a photo if it's sleeping. Well, yeah. It's harassment. <laughs> but you can shoot it if it's walking down the street. Like, if you're feeling threatened. Yeah, if you know what I mean. Like it's so – all that all that quirky stuff. Uh, yeah. And I just love we've, – we've done a little segment on the show now called Interesting Facts. And it started in Alaska because there was so many quirky things that I'll come back from a break three times and just tell something – some random thing – about the Mornington Peninsula, some random thing about bears in Alaska. or And people love it because not everybody who watches a show fishes. Yeah. A lot of people don't, but they want to see the, the markets. They want, to, they want to hear about that. Like I only learnt the difference between horns and antlers in the last three or four years. Going. And if you went down the street now, guarantee 99 out of 100 people have no idea the difference. No, you're right about that. So there's all these things. When you know something, you suddenly think the whole world must know it. But the more simple you make things – 
and the easier it is, people just love it. And, and I think that's why the show has been so successful because we try to help people. We try to, we try to teach them a bit about fishing, but number one, we have fun and we entertain because I actually think the world can be so opposite to that so often for so many people. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people live shit lives. I think a lot of people go into jobs every day they hate. Some people live with people they hate. I'm sorry to say that, but it's just, I see the, I know some of these people, some people are just so damn miserable and they don't have to be. So I just think if you can give them that half hour of joy and you're genuinely having joy yourself, you can't make that up and people feel it. And I think that's why the show's been successful and we've been able to ride that way for a long time because we're doing it with family, we're doing it with friends. And even on those days when, and it can be a little bit depressing sometimes, like I was just away for 16 days without my family and that's never easy. And you're working 18-hour days and sometimes things don't go right. And just on those days when you know you've got your family to come home to and you know that you're making something that's going to be special, that's what gets you through. Um, and I think on the WA trip we just got back from, we filmed our 500th episode of iFish. I can't believe you do that much filming. It's just I mean, not- I was starting to figure it out because we've been trying to lock this interview down for a while. and <laughs> You just thought I was rude. <laughs> well, no, not rude at all. Just really really extravagantly busy and I was thinking to myself there's no way he's actually that busy like it's impossible to be that busy but you really are that busy it's lit it is it is chaotic for the last 10 years our calendar is literally there's there's windows of two days sometimes and in that window you've got to do the things you got to do like go to an accounts meeting or go to the dentist whatever you've just got so literally this is an absolute rarity, but I've got the ability. I think I've got two or three days this week when I'm drifting, I'll call it. Yeah. And that is because I just spent 16 days on the road. So we caught up a little bit and, and I'm already planning this week to go away again next week. How are you going to keep this up for the next 20 years or do you want to? I don't know that I want to. I, yeah. I want to, but I think there's more to life, my life. I want to spend more time with my family. Mm-hmm. I, want to, I want to do some things with friends. My friends have been neglected the last 10 years because I don't even get invited to barbecues anymore. Because they, they just know. assume you're out of town. Yeah, and yeah, I understand same. that. So you miss out on all these things. You miss out on I – missed, I missed my brother-in-law's wedding, mm. which I went to – I the, was just going to say weddings. I went it's to, like weddings are the first thing to go. I went to the um, actual wedding bit, but then I had to leave for the reception. And even though he forgives me for it, I know he's devastated. And I, my wife went to her brother's wedding without me. Like that just shouldn't happen. Um, I missed my niece's birthday party. On a Friday night, I think it was, family birthday, and on the Sunday she had an asthma attack and passed away seven days later. Oh, I'm so, oh god, so, my stomach upset. I'm so, so sorry. There's all these things now. Had I missed her birthday normally, it wouldn't bother you, but it would have been the last time I ever saw her. So all these things, it's great to look from the outside and and people go, wow, look, I I am a very very ordinary person living the most extraordinary life. And that's just – that's just, and I, I'm grateful for every second. But there are sacrifices that everybody makes, whether they're the Olympic champion or whether they're not that many of those. But if you don't make a sacrifice, it won't happen. Yeah. And, and we spoke about travel before. Travelling ain't fun. But if anyone ever tells you travelling is fun, they're wrong. Being there is fun, but travelling sucks. And when you do it for, as part of your living, it really sucks. Oh. You get used to it. You get a routine. I mean, I appreciate a little bit of time alone and I like – you know, there, I get a lot of work done. But yeah. it still sucks. It sucks. I mean, there's only, I'd so, be home. there's only so many steaks you can eat in a hotel room by yourself. That's right. And and people go, oh, but we'll fly you to Sydney. Yeah. And you can stay. Go, That's great. You get the experience, yeah. and it's like I just want to be sitting wanna... on my couch in my, on my fat ass with some sweatpants. 
and some Netflix. Or, or in some Ugg boots. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. I feel <laughs> like I, I'm at home. And I want to spend that time. You, you, I want to be at my boy's footy game. Yeah. I want to like, you got a child, you just, you, want, you, you won't get the chance again. He's 12 overnight. So yeah. I literally, what I'd love to do in the future, I'd love to take the foot off the pedal a little bit and have, have a bit more balance. A bit more work. I've got a great work-life balance, but I want a little bit more us time. Not just for me, but for my parents, for my wife, my boy. It'd be nice to just, and it'd be nice too. I go to all these great places. I meet these incredible people. I always get invited back. You know how many times I've gone back? Never. Because I haven't got time. Because you're on to the next. I said to Christy, imagine one day if we could literally ring some of these amazing people. Hey, we'd love to come for a week just to fish. No No cameras. cameras, Just to... Just to be able to have a beer and drop the F-bomb without worrying that – like just to be able to be normal. Mm-hmm. and Be that, off for a bit. Just to be off because, yeah, you know, you're on, you're on, you're on, you're on, and just to go and be normal with people. Mm-hmm. And that's what I look forward to. And, and don't think for a minute that I'm whinging about my lot in life. I love it. But that's what I – that's where I see the future being. And I've got – I'm literally working on plans right now. I think the 500th episode was a big milestone for me mm-hmm. mentally. I'm a bit of a – I like to get things done a lot. And that for me was like – I've achieved something I'm pretty proud of. If I if I backed off of it now, I think I could be content. Yeah. Well, I mean, listen, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I'm in your house right now. It's astounding. It looks like you're comfortable. We go. It's, I always tell my mates, it's not bad for a two-bedroom, five-row on the hill. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. <laughs> if I cut the tree down one day, we'll get a view. Um, are no, your parents just ecstatic? They are. They're, and it's so nice because dad's 81 and mum's like 79. They come here every week. For a day, because my mum, if she isn't in, the, if she isn't in the laundry, there's something wrong. Yeah. Like she comes for a coffee. I don't see her for two hours because she's ironing. Yeah. Um, my dad treats my garden like his. He's always out there potting around, doing this, doing that. And they are, I know they're extremely proud. Yeah. And I always say to Jet because it's so hard being a parent. I say probably the number one thing you want to try and achieve in your life is to make the people who you really care about proud of you. Mm-hmm. If you can do that. It doesn't matter how, why, when or where, all the little things disappear. But when you go to make a decision, just go, would mum and dad be proud of me? Totally. Because if you can do that, it's a damn good feeling. Can I pick your brain a little bit about the people listening right now who would like to buy a tackle shop or or dive into that world? Because it's a question I get a a lot of and I am always admittedly, look, I'm just going to lay it on the table. Let's just get real here for a sec. First thing I say to them is don't be a fool. Don't waste your money. Don't buy a shop. It's just a, a, a money pit. I mean, am I wrong? I get asked at least once a week because people people w- want to live the dream. And I have a saying that I say the same every time. I look down and I, and I quietly speak because if you quietly speak, people think you're going to say something important. Okay. I'm going to tell you right now how to make a small fortune out of fishing tackle. And their ears prick up and I say, start with a large one. And I've seen so many times someone gets a payout from work, they're 50, they've got 250 grand as a payout, they want to live the dream, they put it all in a tackle shop and within five years they're bust. So oh, you, start with a large yeah, fortune, yeah. not a large shop. No, start with a large fortune, I can guarantee you'll make a small fortune by the end of it. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> if somebody was feeling savvy yep. on the internet or on television, because there's a lot of that nowadays. And they're thinking, well, I could do what Paul did. I could I could have a presence and get promotion or promote my show while being online. Could they do it? Have times changed that much? I think times have changed. And look, I'm, I'll never say never because I'm sure if someone's got enough drive, they can do anything. But the problem I see today is when I was trying to get a fishing show up, for instance, 
There was no other. There was one other fishing show in Australia, and there was no Instagram. There was no Facebook. So there was one other competitor, even though he wasn't a competitor. Now there's a million competitors. Every person who has a phone technically is my competitor because they can literally drive down to get a coffee now. A killer whale breaches, lands on a seal, it pops in the air and hits a bus. And if they're filming that, they are they are better than me because they've got something the world wants to see. So I've just got to try and be consistent and get the best I can get, but I can't compete with a million people with phones. So the market has been so diluted that trying to build a brand, in my opinion now, is almost impossible. And all you got to do is scroll through Instagram and everybody's doing it. And I could name a hundred, I could name a thousand, and they all want to be the next whatever. And I have this saying that people are Insta-famous, and it's so bizarre because you could have a guy called Bob, and Bob's got three followers, and he posts all the time to three followers. But if you, I was one of his followers, and I met him down the coffee shop, Bob, he's famous to me. So he's famous to three people, but the rest of the world doesn't know he exists. So in Bob's world, he's famous. Bob thinks he should get lots of money to show people lures and stuff, but realistically he's touching three people and that's where it's hard. So there's definitely, I mean, there has to be the next generation of, of someone to fill the void and that next person's out there now and I wish them all the best, but I would hate to be having to do it. Yeah, it's tough in this mar- In this market. And I think, I think you really have to, I know, you'd really have to be very specific. You'd have to have a goal of what you want to achieve and I think you'd have to be prepared to work for 10 years for nothing at the hope of one day making something. And I've even seen over the last five years, the industry's getting tougher and tougher. It's just becoming diluted. It is. Because, and it's getting really hard to tell the reels from the fakes. And that's the other thing too. Like, yeah, you just don't know, unless you physically know someone, you don't know. And you could, you could then form a partnership with them and then all of a sudden they're a bum and they, they ruin your brand. So it is, and you get these flash in the pans too. People are really good at doing something really well for a short period of time. So someone will come out of nothing, they'll get 5,000 followers and then you never hear them again. But isn't it weird that we're even in a, in a stage in our lives where we're talking about followers? It's, like I, 15 years ago, I wasn't thinking I'd be sitting here talking about followers. It's just the strangest thing to me that street cred comes from that. And, and it does. And I see it sadly with kids. It's all, and, and this is, I heard the funniest comment recently. When we were kids, we kept a diary. Yeah, right. that's right. I had a fishing log and yep. I kept track of so, everything. But you'd keep a diary and I never really did, but girls would write in the and you'd hide Oh, you, it. you mean like a regular uh, yeah, diary? Yeah, like a journal. Yeah, yeah. And, and you would hide it. You'd put all your thoughts in it, you'd hide it, and if anyone read it, you'd go tropo. Now you put your diary out for the world and if not enough people read it, you go tropo. So, or it's like you're writing the journal today knowing that if someone read, But like it's fake though. A lot of it's bullshit. It is absolute fake. And, not and everybody. I mean, not everybody's out there lying, but a lot of it is. Well, I always say, do you ever see a person put a picture on Facebook with a sad face with their hands in there like this? I didn't catch any today. Very rare. But you see a big fish. So you don't see the nine trips they caught. Nothing. You see the big fish. And for a kid like my boy, how do I try to explain that to him? Because he just thinks that person goes, they get a big fish every time. All the time, yeah. Well, how come we went three times and didn't catch one? And so there's this, literally there is a false world we're creating. And particularly kids, I let Jack get Instagram this year. But to try and explain this to him, I don't want him to have a false view of the world. But could television be a false view of the world? I mean, it does the same thing. 100%. But I suppose at least with television, it's monitored like you get your parental guidance recommended your m plus the network watches it and they won't let certain things go through on instagram you can pretty much on social media you can tell lies so it's really hard for kids to decipher and then the other problem you get is really hard for kids to get negative comments and feedback from people yeah and i get 
a lot of negative feedback. My wife gets an absolute – Oh, she'd get hammered with it. She gets at least once a week yeah. someone sending photos of their appendage to her. No, really? Private message. And then what's written underneath it is like, oh, my God. Like once a week. I don't understand. I'm uh, sorry. Like I, I, I'm, I'm afraid to say anything I, because I don't want to open myself up. I, I don't want to sound like I'm asking for any photos because no, I'm not. Don't. <laughs> but I have never – Received one of those. Why is she getting that? I mean, it's clear on there that she's a mum. Yep, and, and that's, a yeah, professional. A mum, professional, and and never. It's just obviously people think in that space they're allowed to do that. So what I've taught myself because I had to learn too, um, and I, and I think it's a good thing for people to remember because I remember getting really upset by a comment once, like someone says something about my boy. Oh, oh, and it really broke my heart. And I spent the next forty minutes after his first footy match ever, and. In the car on the way home, I didn't speak to him or Christy. I was so angry and I was getting mad. And then when I realized, realized I got home, this person had stolen 40 minutes of joy with my family. Should have been the yeah. best moment ever. Mm-hmm. And, I was so, and I thought, I'll never let it happen again. So I devised for myself this thing. I'll only accept criticism from people I respect. And now if somebody says or does or look, I will think, do I respect you? No. <laughs> Water for ducks back. Yeah. And, and it's been a great philosophy because now I don't even – you could not say anything on social media that would hurt me. You just hit on something really interesting is is criticism. And I think that, that that's something that my gener- well, the younger generation does need to learn how to take. Do you think that criticism existed as fiercely as it did back then when you first got into this, but you just didn't, it just didn't have a way of getting back to I, you? I think, yeah, I think in the old days you had the criticism and it might be three blokes having a barbie and a beer and they might say, oh, that worse than guy in the shops or wanker or whatever. Like, but you didn't hear it and they'd never say it to you because people say a lot of stuff that really is just fluff. They say it for, but, but what it's allowed people to do is to say things without having a face. And I, I know people would never – I don't think – very few people ever said something really rude to my face. They have, they have occasionally, but it was like I just thought, oh, my God. Like a dude walking the shop one day and says, Paul here? I said, yeah, and it was me. So how awkward is that? Yeah. yeah, I'm Paul. No, you're not. I said, yeah, I'm Paul. He goes – Bullshit. Paul's way fatter than you. I would have said thank you. And, I just, and, and I, it took five minutes. He thought I was taking the piss we say in Australia. Yeah. I had to get my license out. No. And sh- this is me. And in the end he goes, well, I still don't think it looks like you, but okay. Now, I'm here to buy a reel. Great. And I was like, but that, that's pretty <laughs> surreal. So I would be delighted if somebody was like, listen, you look way fatter on television. Yeah. I'd be like, well, thank you. I was once working at the Olive Garden. Yep. And Alanis Morissette came in. I love Alanis. Mm, except I didn't realize it was Alanis. I, th- I thought it was, but I said, oh, it's just, yeah, her face is a lot longer than yours. <laughs> she left me her signature when she left. Let's talk a little bit about this whole futuristic stuff because you mentioned something really interesting earlier about drones. Mm. What in the blasted hell? First time I saw that was last year, maybe two years ago. And I saw this young guy, I think it was, it was last Christmas, two Christmases ago, this man had bought his kids a drone and they were on the rocks getting ready to take it fishing. And Charles and I just sat back and popped the popcorn and watched it all fall to shit. Oh. I mean, that thing was busted within like minutes. What is going on? Is it ethical? I mean, I have a million questions for you. So we use drones a lot on the TV show. How does that work though? So you attach your line? Yep. So we obviously first and foremost use drones to make TV, to get nice shots. But we were at Wangla Dam where I think you fish for carp on fly I'm not in sure. New South Wales. I was with this guy and I think he said you'd been there recently fly fishing. Were you with Ken? Yeah. Oh, great. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Ken. I, I couldn't remember his name. Ken. Ken Smith, I think his name is. Yeah, he's great. Lovely guy. So we put a drone up to do some filming and my producer's yelling, cast, 
20 feet to the left. He could see the carp. So he's got the job. I'm casting, I'm blind casting to fish that he could see. So that's the first time I went, oh my God, this is wrong. So it puts an eye in the sky. Then I go to Alaska and it is illegal. I was going to say that is very illegal. Especially so, you can't chase animals with yep. it. or So you can't use a drone for fishing in Alaska to help fishing in Alaska. Oh, you can't even no. use it just for fishing. No, you're not allowed. It's, it's illegal. I never would have thought about using it for sighting. I know that if you watch my television series when I used to be on TV, you could see the drone go over and the fish separate and move. Yep. And I blame that drone because you can see the shadow of it 100%. on the water. So I was, I was doing some editing this morning and I've got the most incredible footage of king salmon in the river on the drone and pull it back down and because we were filming it and literally – I know exactly where to cast. So we started seeing these benefits of finding fish with a drone. Interesting. Which no one's ever really done. But then I go to WA last week, Western Australia, and the guy goes, oh, my mate's catching snapper off the beach. Now, to catch a snapper off the beach, I have a saying, rare as rock and horse shit. You just don't see much of it around. So to do that, I think, wow, this is using drones. So what is mind-blowing about drone fishing? If you think about the beach, you've got the surf break, and then you've got out. Now, let's say you launch a boat and you drive – 10 miles. If you're going to go to all that effort, you're not going to fish within 300 metres to the shore or in the shore break. You're going to fish out in the deeper water or, and you can't fish the surf break because the swell's too bad. So normally surf casting, you've cast 50 metres. There's a 250 metre patch of water that's never been fished. Like literally never fished. So with a drone, we can drop baits and we're watching on the camera where the reef is. We're dropping our baits on the edge of the reef on in the sand hole. But how are you dropping them? Like you're attaching the line? So the rig then... the rig is like five metres long. On the top of it, we put a, a line with a bit with a loop. And then there's a, bit, a special attachment you buy and you hook it on. You fly it out. You hit a button and it goes. You're kidding. It. Yep. That exists? Yep. There's actually three different attachments. Uh, C also make one. I think Gannett makes another. And they're all different. For fishing? Just for fishing. Oh my, it's, this is mind-blowing It's going to, to be the next big thing. I, Do you think it should be? I mean, I don't know how I feel about this. Yeah, it's, it's, I actually like the idea because it gives land-based anglers a chance to catch fish. And I always feel, particularly in build-up cities, land-based anglers really, it sucks. So it's going to open up new opportunities. And it's also going to take pressure off other fisheries because if you're fishing, we're at the 90-mile beach and it literally is long. So if you're going to start drone fishing and fishing those areas. Is that what it's called, drone fishing? Yeah, what's what we call it. Oh my You're goodness. literally fishing areas, so it's taking pressure off other areas, and you're literally fishing for fish that have never been touched. So it's actually, in a way, I think not a bad thing because it takes pressure off the rest of the system. Think about the shit show that could happen, though. I mean, oh. you could have guys trying to beat each other to the spot. Yep. I mean, there's how much do these drones cost? So a decent one, the Phantom, which we use, about two grand, <laughs> and you will lose drones. I'm going to be laughing at every single person listening to the show who loses their drone. Serves you right, <laughs> damn it. So it's all about the rig. The <laughs> yeah. rig is, and, I, and literally, it's a bit involved, but it's so clever, and... We literally take to the next level. We were filming. So we were filming the drone dropping the bait with another drone. And we've got the most incredible footage of the bait. Just picks it, it picks up off the beach, takes off like a plane. And you go 290, 90. Oh, there's a reef. Go to the left. We'll drop it in that sand hole. Bang. And it, was, it drops in the water. Put it in the rod holder. Next thing you're catching, snapper this big. In At 2.30, middle of the day, bright sunshine, glass calm, Shouldn't have happened. There's just so many things that can go wrong, though. What about the whole argument of, you know, fish deserve to have some... Alone time. I, I I don't mind that, but I reckon these particular fish, they've had a lot of alone time. Right. <laughs> like literally, I just love the idea of, of if like our bay gets a lot of pressure. If you took 10% of those people out of the bay, less pressure on a, on a highly pressured fish and, and got them down, there is so much coastline. Like you couldn't – if you got every person in Australia down, you'd probably struggle – 
to fill it. It's, so I just see it. And the other thing I like about it, it's going to take people to new places. It's going to take them on that adventure because you might hike in a kilometre to get to a rocky outcrop and then put a bait out 100 metres on a drone. We How far out can it go? Uh, a thousand metres if you need to. What? So, But what if you're fishing alone? You know, you, you've got your rod in your hand. Yep. Walk me through this. You've got your rod in your hand. So you put the rod in a rod holder. Okay. In a, and you open the bale. Yeah. You hook the rig up to the drone and you literally take the drone off away from the rod and it, as it starts to fly, the line just comes off and it follows it out. So you're holding the remote control with yeah, you're two literally, hands. Yeah, two hands. And then after it's dropped, you need to close the bale. Close the bale, wind up the slack line. Yeah. And you use a grapple sinker so it grabs the bottom. So how are you getting your drone back? How are you multi? Just, you fly it home. It's 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 takes a bit of skill. It's really a two person job. Okay, but you can do it. But you're really two people, and and I really wouldn't recommend going drone or beach fishing by yourself anyway. I think anytime you're on a beach or rocks, two people for safety. The smallest thing can happen, and it turns to crap pretty quick. So especially if you're worried about losing two thousand dollars, because it yes. can make you do some stupid and, things. And it is going to happen, but. I just, I just, I've been asking myself for a while, what's the next big thing in fishing? Someone asked me only a month ago and I said, I don't have an answer. I, this is going to be it. What they've done for television. Yeah, it's that, that, undeniable. That perspective. I remember in the old days, if we got a helicopter for two minutes because they were so expensive and we got an aerial shot, we couldn't wait to watch the show. Wow, look at that. And the helicopter's moving. It's a crap <laughs> shot anyway. But now... You're literally seeing the perspective. You see, we were flathead fishing in Tasmania about two months ago. Yeah. We could see three flathead this big following the soft plastic to our feet, like literally see them chasing it. And you can see it on TV. Like that's a perspective you've never seen before. That is true. And, no, that's true. And it just, it's so unbelievable. Oh, I'm going to have to let that one sit with me for a while. But it is refreshing to be able to not have, I remember filming with a helicopter and they're like, okay, now we want you to make a cast just right underneath the helicopter. And meanwhile, my hair is blowing, my clothes are blowing and this, I'm almost being thrown over because of the wind or the power of the blades. Yeah. But with the drone, it just can hover above you and worst case scenario, you-, you Worst case, it drops out of the sky. We've lost in the last- And no one dies. Yeah, exactly. Three years. We've lost two drones. Okay, but you have a professional flying them. Yes, and, but, and, but both to malfunctions. They literally, one took off, the blade fell off, gone. So we now carry two to three drones on every trip. God, you're making me feel so old school right now. I mean, I remember trying to get the seagulls to pick up my popper so that they could fly it out over the break, but now <laughs> we just have this machinery. Well, that's it. I think you can drop a popper 300 meters offshore and work it the whole way back. Oh. Yeah. So literally, that's another thing. Um, so, and, and you get schools of tuna out the back of the breaks. I remember not being able to cast an extra 30 metres. Now you drop it 50 past them, just bring it back through. I, mean, I guess the argument is what's the difference if you have a boat, you're going the same distance. And, and people spend 200 grand a boat, spend $1,000 on a drone and you're in the same sort of capacity. It's got its limitations because you've got to wind a fish in 300 metres and that hurts. But I just see it opening up and I, and I see too, I hope it's not the same in your country, but I just feel that fishing is waning a little bit in Australia. It's not as popular as it was. I feel that there's a lot of distractions like Facebook and Instagram and, and that just they're taking people away from packing the car and going away for the day or the weekend. And I think if we can make fishing more exciting for young people, then there's a greater chance fishing will survive a long time. And I see drones as one of those things. So like, electronics are kind yeah, of like the my, gateway. My boy would be so pumped to go drone. Not, not that I have to convince him, but, but if I said to his mates who don't fish, today we're going to go drone fishing, they'd all want to come. <gasps> if I said we're just going to fish off the pier, it's like, uh so I think anything we can do to modernise fishing more for the younger generation, I see that as a positive as well. And I see drone fishing as being a real, like you're almost playing a remote control game, but it's real. Yeah, I was going to say and it's then, like playing games. And then you can catch the fish. So 
I just think I just think it's important. I've been to so many places like yourself. If we don't have fisher people on the water seeing what's happening, places can get into a lot of trouble because we're the eyes and ears of the oceans, the lakes, the rivers of the world. So we've got to have the next generation out there. And if, like this pebble mine thing I know about, if we don't have people like Jack going to Alaska, when he hears about it, why is he going to care? So I just think anything to get those kids going, it's just so important. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. <laughs>